Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat with me, Ryan McLeod. This is episode four, part two, again with Tommy Perman. In this one, we go a little bit more in depth about his process and about his work. And a few sort of thoughts and opinions in and around that as well. So we'll just dive straight in. And here is episode four, part two with Tommy Perman. One of the things that I think is getting talked about quite a lot currently is around the idea of art schools and universities preparing students to go into the world, which is a massively complex and difficult task. And I think there's a lot of times unrealistic expectations of, of what a graduate should be and what they, they can do. I just want to get a little bit of your perspective of the things that you're instilling in, in the students and the skills and then the, the thought processes and their outlook and how you start that journey of preparing them. So my <laughs> often the least favourite question that any art student wants to be asked is do you have a plan for after art school? Um, and I like asking them that question because that helps me tailor what I'll say to them about how to prepare them or you know, the kind of things I might be able to do to help them prepare for that life outside of art school. I think it's really important for me to know what they're interested in, if they can imagine themselves doing something else outside of art school. What is that thing? And then we can try and tailor the degree to meet those needs. And it goes back to me saying, if you find that thing that you love doing, then work super hard on it, you know, and, and make it happen. Because I don't really, yeah, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution for that, preparing a student for life after college. And although my method probably is harder because it's more lengthy, I think it's surely more fulfilling, you know, if you can help. A lot of the time, people don't know what they want to do and, you know, and that's a totally fine response. But part of my job is presumably to try and help them discover that. So like to work with them on whatever it is that interests them, you know, so if we can find some things within the course that suit them more or they're excited about, then start there and develop that and then maybe think about where that could lead to in terms of life outside of college and the other thing that we're doing both in graphic design and illustration but i've had more input at the moment into illustration one is bringing in people to talk to students that have managed to make a career out of doing something creative and i'm lucky enough to know many wonderful people doing interesting things that are continuing to make enough money to to do that and they're all you know probably have similar stories to me where they've had to do all manner of things for cash but are broadly speaking still doing what they love doing and I think and I, I ask them to speak frankly about what life is like and has been like after college and, and it's a similar kind of content that I'm looking for in the blog that I'm writing mm. what that journey has been and and I'd like to include people that didn't go to art school. To art school, you know, I'm trying to think what the right phrasing is, but any stretch of the imagination, art school is not 
the be all and end all for creativity and there are many different routes to getting to do something creative with your life and uh, so I'm hoping to I don't think I'll be able to bring in many people to speak that have come through different routes, but I'm certainly going to interview them for my blog and, mm. and present these different paths through lives and opportunities and, and just to show people, give inspiration to people that there are different ways to to be a graphic designer or to be an illustrator or um, that that can be done to becoming a professional photographer or you know whatever it might be or somebody that is making products or somebody that goes on to do something completely different like working in for a charity and, and like something like I was working at an art link where they're working with artists to challenge systems societal systems and try and make lives more livable um, so yeah, I guess those are the things that I'm trying to do to help prepare people. And so showing that there are lots of different routes through life after college. Yeah, I think that's really important because and something I'm trying to do with the podcast is highlight those journeys and those stories to show that no two peoples are the same. And I suppose it, it, it comes down to that, the notion of success and how you measure that success. Because everyone has got a different measure of what it is and, and sometimes those are unrealistic values or you don't perceive what you're doing as success. I mean, on a very basic level, just sustaining a career and doing what you love is a success. So it'd be interesting to get your take on, on what you feel success is. It's probably something that changes all the time and, and I think... You know, while I've got a CV that reads impressively and um, definitely things that can be taken as marks of success, it depends when you ask me <laughs> how I'm feeling, what's happening currently, what's coming up, you know, how successful I feel because I have encountered an awful lot of failure and knockbacks and um, rejections on my journey and I, I see them as being equally important to the successes and I hope very much to stay grounded and keep myself in check and then at any point where I'm getting too arrogant to like you know one of those rejections could come along and knock me back down a wee bit and just like yeah, get a hold of yourself but um so at success I would have to view it much more holistically than just anything to do with a career or artwork that I've made or things I've done. So for me, you know, slightly cringy sound bite wise, it's down to family and relationships and, and love and making those work and, you know, my kids and, and friendships and stuff. That for me is life goals and, and success. And, and, I used to think that I was the kind of person that wouldn't be able to make a long-term relationship work because I was so driven in my kind of life as an artist and, and things I wanted to do, but I've completely changed my, you know, my view on that. I think uh, 
hopefully life is a relatively long journey, you know, if we're lucky um, these days. And that you've got to balance it out with and make yourself as successful in all areas of your life as you can, rather than just focusing wholeheartedly on one thing and letting other stuff slip. So that's, that's a pretty wholesome view of it, but uh, it's, it's where I am at currently, you know, rather than, and I'm actually have made conscious decisions to turn down applying for bigger artistic opportunities because they're not as important to me anymore. Like I feel like I've done a lot of cool stuff and I know that there'll be other interesting stuff on the horizon, but I'm kind of pacing myself a lot more now. Yes, it's interesting how that measure changes over, over yeah. your lifespan and how your priorities change and your family situation and your geographic location and I think it, especially when I came out of university there was a sort of the world's your oyster you can do whatever you like but then reality hits in you get married you have kids you get a mortgage you have those commitments that then lead to things that then tie you down or you look at the world in a different way and think I need that little bit of security and I think like you said failure is a really healthy thing to have in your life because if, if you're only ever successful or you only ever succeed in the things that you do, then you have a very twisted view of the world and you'll think that you'll be able to succeed at anything. So anytime you fail, it's going to hit you 10 times harder. Hmm. Um, but then you, you'll never learn from your experiences. And I think that's, that's really important that failure is part of life and you just have to accept it and learn from it and get on with it. Absolutely. But I'd like to talk a bit more about your, your work I follow you on Instagram and you have a very very strict aesthetic that you have that runs through all the photographs that you take. They're, they're often quite architectural and um, they focus on line and shape but the, there's a sort of abstract feel about them that since you've moved to Dundee you've taken photos of things that I've passed or looked at for years and never seen them in that way. So what is it about the, the line and the shape that really interests you? This is the one thing where I feel that that's something that comes from me, that where I, I try to be very generous with the idea of creativity, that everybody is creativity and can be creative and you can teach creativity and you can teach weight methods and stuff but this one thing I really think has been with me since I was born you know a certain way of I, I almost don't like admitting that but I, I think I have a particular way of seeing the world and I'm sure we all do but I have a particular way of noticing detail I no longer draw that much which saddens me I don't have enough time for it so photography has become my drawing and my eyes draw. If I sit still or inhabit a space or walk past something enough times or even once, <laughs> I don't know, I just have a certain way of noticing things. My eyes edit things in maybe a less conventional way. It's always been with me, but it came into sharper focus 
when I, in my, after that exhibition tour, I developed this eye condition called central serous retinopathy, um, which is the eyes made up of lots of, like an onion skin, lots of thin layers, and one of those layers towards the back of my eye, my right eye, kind of opened out for some reason, for whatever reason. It's quite a relatively common condition, but they don't know that much about how to treat it or anything. Fluid comes into the back of your eye and you get this horrible um, discoloured spot in the centre of your vision. And it lasted, when I first got it, it was the end of working intensely at a computer, <laughs> but like really, really hard, late nights, work preparing for the final exhibition at the Royal Scottish Academy and um, I uh, for months after that I had this like large discoloured spot in my field of vision and so if I was sitting with it now and I've still got it to a, a small extent but it's largely healed your face would appear like really sunburnt or um, like incredibly discoloured and uh, it was quite alarming and it took a while to diagnose and I didn't know what was going on. One of the suggested treatments for kind of strengthening my eyes was this activity to uh, strengthen the muscles but because if you sit at a computer screen without taking breaks, without changing your uh, field of focus because uh, you're doing too much near-field stuff, you're just looking six inches ahead of your face. And for me, doing lots of really, really detailed digital drawings, working on intense, minute detail for hours on end in like high contrast color schemes. So it's a total recipe for disaster, right? So, you know, I'm my own worst enemy. And I wasn't, I'm bad at taking breaks and I'm bad at like, I just get, totally absorbed in what I'm doing. So I read about one thing that could be done to strengthen my eyes again, which was this fun thing uh, called like a colour walk, where you pick a colour before you go out for a walk, yellow, right? And go and no try to notice yellow everywhere you possibly can. And it's really simple exercise, which allows your eyes to dart from foreground, middle ground, background, you know, changing the field of focus, the depth of focus the whole time. And whether or not it helped the eye condition, I have no idea, but it was like a, a, a useful additional exercise for me in noticing stuff. And I think it led on to a way of thinking about looking. And since then, I've kind of, I'm sure I always did this, but I think it's enhanced that anyway. And so I've started to notice my pattern of looking and, and my way of categorizing stuff in my head. And I like almost store things I've seen in the city for later re-inspection. I'm like, right, there's something really interesting going on there. I'm going to go back and have a closer look and then I'll take a photograph of it or whatever. Um, 
So that tends to be what's going on in my head. Um, another thing to count that has changed my, and really important thing to talk about my work is collaboration and working with some really incredible people. So the guys in found they definitely changed the way I thought about the world and saw the world. And then we started working with um, Simon Kirby, who's a professor of language evolution at the University of Edinburgh. And me and Simon have become very, very good friends over the years. And he's an inspirational person. And um, he's a scientist, but I think he completely thinks like a, an artist. I don't see the annoying distinction of like the arts and sciences being separate and again we're talking historically a lot of scientists were definitely artists too and vice versa. Simon has definitely changed the way I see the world. Um, another close collaborator, Rob St John, who um, is a writer, a musician and a kind of geographer. <laughs> He, we did this project together in Edinburgh called Water of Life, where we went on, we essentially just went on meandering walks together, looking at stuff, talking about stuff, taking photographs and doing sound recordings in unusual ways. And then made lots of work about that. And he has an incredibly interesting way of viewing the world which has definitely influenced the way I see things now or has reminded me about stuff that I had been thinking about that I'd let slip which are these kind of he is currently researching and writing about the Anthropocene which is the newly titled age that we live in you know the idea that humans have impacted the world beyond recognition, well, not beyond recognition, but um, if we go back historically to a time before humans um, and then to now, there's a marked difference and um, we're living in the Anthropocene and there is a very difficult relationship that humans have with the concept of nature and what is nature and I'm fascinated by living in urban environments and me and Rob shared this kind of um, and still share this interest in boundary areas like waste grounds and like things that haven't been properly designated by a city council or things that have been forgotten about and they've become overgrown and so nature whatever that is or um, certainly plants have tried to, tried to they've just started growing again in these spaces and they've become these incredibly intriguing areas that mix between man-made stuff and organic stuff and and you can often see so many eras and in cities you can often see so many eras and layers and of things going on old shop frontages that or signs that have 
long since been forgotten something horrible and new that's been built in front of it and then forgotten and closed down and then like plants are going up through something and, and these kind of unusual areas really fascinate me and and I've not and I, I never resolve entirely why certain things interest me but a lot of thoughts go through my head as I'm taking photographs and about these these things and and the way that humans have impacted our environment so much and, and I don't have a particular kind of eco message um, I care a lot about trying to keep the world going for us humans as long as we can I don't think the world cares if the humans are here or not they'll carry on doing its thing we'll have killed off a lot of different species in the process but I'd quite like it if humans got to play the game for a long time in the future but in my own artwork there isn't necessarily a particular message about that I'm just kind of interested in what's happening now and the aesthetics of now these really unusual interwoven aesthetics of that difficult to unpick from all these different eras and it feels like everything's so much more accelerated now it's a really weird time to live in and to experience and to constantly have this backdrop of the internet and um, looking at stuff on your phone while walking through the, the world giving us this feeling that we're neither living in the internet digital virtual realm nor in the old physical here and now we live somewhere in between those things so that's stuff that me and Rob and Simon discuss a lot and um, is at the back of my mind while kind of walking around the place taking photographs and then more purely aesthetic things where I'm just getting excited about the way mostly shadows I absolutely love shadows and I could look at the way that light and shadow change familiar things or create incredible new geometric shapes I could look at that all day long and take photographs of that and yeah that just inspires me one of your projects in particular I wanted to chat about um, I don't know much about it other than what's on Instagram mm -hmm. but it's called the empty web yeah from what I understand it's the basic loading of a page so before it loads properly you sort of capture that in a very minimalist abstract form and it takes something that the internet is filled with content obsessively and it, it, it permeates everywhere and often ruins a lot of the aesthetic of it because it is inherently functional and it's there to make you buy a product or yeah whatever the, the purpose may well be but, and yeah I want to get a bit of insight into to that project because it brings a real beauty to the internet that, that doesn't exist in many places. Yeah, I mean you've summarised it incredibly well. Um, there are more thoughts that have come to mind while capturing those things. I think a lot of it feels the same as the way that I walk through the city taking photographs and what um, interested me about computer phones is um, 
the ability to screen capture is, you know, it makes a wee camera shutter sound when you do that. And to me, it's exactly the same, um, you know, being in the right place at the right time to capture that photograph. So sometimes you're, uh, the, the moment is very fleeting in what I'll have to describe as the real world, where you might see something and want to take a photograph of it, and you know, you know like you're on a bus and you're at the lights and you know, just see something that's really interesting right there and you're trying hard to get that before the lights change. So for me, that's exactly the same um, experience as when these web pages are, are loaded. And it originally, I started capturing them on my phone um, around the time that my son was born. I think I was looking at the internet on my phone a lot more late at night when I was trying to get him back to sleep or giving him a break or whatever. And, um, and often I was following links from Twitter or Facebook and for some reason those seemed to load slower. I don't know if it was the extra analytics that they throw on them or something, right? Mm. Um, but I noticed much more um, these building blocks underneath web pages at that time and started to document them and just saw in the web pages this inherent beauty and like sometimes really be beautiful compositions that very much reminded me of the kind of modernist art and architecture that I really love and so and I love collecting photographs of things and it quickly became a collection and then I started to think more into what often I don't know why I'm doing something at the beginning and it takes a long time of doing it and thinking about it before it sort of begins to come a thing and uh, give it a name or something yeah with that one you talked about yeah, the content of the internet and I think we are bombarded with information and web pages are often screaming for our attention all the time and um, these were little kind of fleeting moments of peace and, and beauty on the internet that I found amazing so I wanted to, to share them and Kind of coming back to talking about the printed world, the internet often doesn't allow for space. Maybe a little bit more in contemporary web page design, there is more white space and or negative space and um, consideration of a balance. But that's just on specific like websites that are designed for designers to look at, probably. Yeah. Right. So most of the time, it's like an, an onslaught of colour and different fonts and things screaming at you and too much um, motion and so yeah I, I was thinking about it in relation to because I love books and artist books in particular and kind of things that I love in books the pacing of things and the fact that blank pages are left consciously to balance things out so you, whether that be like a few blank pages at the beginning of the book before you even have a title page or and there's practical reasons why that happens to do with printing and um, collation of pages and so forth but there's also 
a real convention to the pacing of, of books. If you go back and look at most books, they'll have like a blank page or two. Maybe they have the nice end papers, which have a typically might just be a flat color or a repeat pattern, and then you've got like a few black pages and then a title page or a dedication page and things builds nice and slowly <laughs> before you get into the content. And that for me is a really wonderful thing about the format of a book that it develops over time and it's paced nicely and it's sort of you can do things with the timing um, just of a page turn and then you're met with another blank page before some more content and there's lots you can do with the layout of it. So kind of discovering those little moments of that online. I, me and Rob St. John pitched a development of it. I started doing sculptures based on these empty web pages, but they were at the moment virtual sculptures. So 3D renderings of taking those color geometric shapes and turning them into building blocks, 3D building blocks and creating kind of contemporary art installation like pieces out of them and um, me and Rob wondered about the significance of the internet and the way that it doesn't decay like things do in the real world um, although sometimes it kind of does like <laughs> web, web pages that aren't maintained but in theory a digital um, file could exist indefinitely and not decay and I wondered, we collectively wondered about making sculptures of them and maybe installing them in a natural environment and allowing them to decay or that they were these weird kind of vestiges of a forgotten civilization. We were imagining a time, maybe thousands of years in the future, where people might discover um, the internet era um, and as though it were, you know, um, ancient Greece and see you know ruins ruins of the internet and I wondered how could you do these ruins of the internet so I still want to maybe do something with these web pages that have become sculptures and then degrade and choose materials that would degrade gracefully in some manner mm. um, so that's kind of a bit of a development of it when we were researching that I found uh, a couple of interesting things online one that I'd come across a while before and I've forgotten his name we can maybe if, if it gets mentioned in the podcast we can maybe add a link to it but um, a student an English student um, who funded his degree by doing this um, web page where he sold every single pixel to a, you've come across it so yeah, heard of it, yeah. yeah to a, um, to advertising mm. and to me it actually became a work of art I, I think that visually you know it it should be collected by MoMA or, or somebody. And then at, at the same time, I found a campaign for blank pages for white space on the internet, um, a, a quite a nicely worded website. Quite old now. I'm not sure if it's still being maintained. And those two things seem to be quite nice opposites and... Um, reinforced my feelings about this, the empty web. It's a lovely concept that under all that content exists this beautifully minimal 
thing hiding yeah exactly that, that's kind of there for a split second and then disappears and we never get to fully experience it which is lovely mm-hmm. I think but then uh, the, the white space and the like you're saying about the empty pages I just think that the mentality of, of using or, or creating a digital experience is efficiency so we're always talking about eliminating clicks and how many times do I have to scroll to actually get to that information? And I've designed a lot of websites, so I'm, I'm quite up on that as well. I wonder if we're also missing out on the user experience that it should be enjoyable and fulfilling, you know, that life is actually full of a lot of crap and um, mm. that we need to be trying to create um, beautiful experiences for people and a role of a designer could be that that we could buck that trend and um, say there are you know it could be akin to the slow food movement and the slow you know the kind of return to handcrafted things and and the appreciation of vinyl again and you know all these kind of uh, analog uh, niche things that get shared on Instagram. Yeah. How, how do you install that idea of slow but beautiful without, I mean, when you say slow on the internet, you think dial-up modems and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just blocking in and yeah. frustration yeah, and yeah. things buffering. Yeah. But then there's, there's potentially a, an argument to say that we should slow down our experience online and that it would be a better experience if people took 10 seconds instead of two to enjoy this piece of content. I would say so, and I wish that we could find more ways to do that soon. <laughs> because I think people, my experience of, um, and I don't want to, to use this as a criticism of students, but I think the way that they digest information and experience culture has changed so much since I was a student and even I'm finding that the experience of watching a five minute video with a class of 30 people I'm finding like excruciating like well this is a long time this is, this is a total void we're gonna have to fill this but they're like let's just stop this not chat some more and more you know so yeah I wish that maybe that wasn't the case anymore if we could find ways to cycle back a little bit and increase attention spans because I'm guilty of it too you know I totally um, and I don't I don't know that these things are often wholly good or bad you know they just are and sometimes you can manage to notice that there is a bad thing that could be addressed but it shouldn't be seen quite as black and white as that however I think the experience of scrolling through, say, an Instagram feed quickly of a, a morning or the five minutes that you have in between other tasks and going tap, tap, like, tap, tap, like. <laughs> 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 uh, but sometimes I've not even done what you say, like done the two seconds to consider what the image is and means. It's just I've made a quick judgment based on who's posted it and um, things I've seen of theirs before and I've quickly liked it and then I've gone, oh, hang on a minute, you know, actually that needs further examination as to what they're saying. They're actually saying something that 
uh, maybe the act of liking is not appropriate. <laughs> you know, I should undouble tap and do a comment saying, you know, you know, it was a serious issue that they're trying to share. And yeah, maybe it's a a restriction of content. If you could maintain a, a high level of quality, but say you only get twenty images a day, so you have to appreciate them. So I love this idea and. Um, me and Simon Kirby have worked on various, there's a really great art installation by an artist whose name I can't recall, um, a Canadian uh, interactive installation artist who did this incredible robotic installation and if I remember it rightly, I've only experienced it online, but there was a stack of um, six by four um, colour photographs and you could get the robotic arm to pick one up and show it to you, but then it destroyed it in a shredder afterwards. And um, me and Simon came up with a whole series of projects. Uh, we They weren't based on that because we had the idea before, but um, in, influenced by that afterwards, um, called If Destroyed, if Destroyed Still True. Um, based on the old uh, graffiti you used to write at school, IDST. And um, mostly about who you love or something. And um, the, a number of the ideas involved that kind of you only have so many images that you're allowed to store and that you could add to uh, images in an installation perhaps. You could add an image to that you've created in the gallery but it would push out or degrade the quality of the first image. And as you added more things, perhaps all of them had to become low quality, you know, so there was a fact. There's a lot of reasons that this is interesting um, because if you think about the server farms that are required to store all the Instagram posts that we put up, because you know, they're hosted by Facebook in a number of locations across the planet. And we don't consider what is this thing called the cloud, but it is acres of hardware that require uh, sophisticated cooling systems and um, a large amount of power generation and physical um, space to store a lot of frivolous data, right? And um, there is, a, a, there will be a limit to, to that. We can't keep storing all this information. We do have to consider what is worth keeping and what is worth getting rid of. Humans are, have never been good at that, really. We're hoarders, but we're getting far worse at it. And mm. it's really, really uh, an increasing problem and something we need to to address and I think yeah it's tied up in that culture of, of fast sharing and um, fast consuming of stuff. And that's the end of episode four. You might think it ended a little abruptly there. Uh, what actually happened was the SD cards filled up and cut off a little bit of the end of the, the interview. Uh, so it's a sort of 
weird synergy between what we're talking about with the infinite amount of data and the SD card deciding it's had enough. If you do want to go and check out any of Tommy's work, you can go to surfacepressure.net. Surface Pressure is the name that he, he creates under, and it's at Surface Pressure on Twitter and on Instagram. So thanks to Tommy for coming on. I hope you enjoy this episode. And again, please follow on Instagram and on Twitter at CCC Dundee. And until next week, goodbye. <laughs>